You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. Hello friends and welcome to another episode of The Myth Pilgrim. I pray you're doing well today. This episode we pay homage to the story of The Secret Garden, a timeless classic by English author Francis Hodgson Burnett. Since its publication in 1911, it has been described as one of the most beloved children's books ever written, and its charm has inspired a number of movie adaptations too. I first came to know the story from the 1993 version of the film, directed by Agnesia Holland. It was a childhood favourite of myself and my sister growing up, and I think I loved it because it sort of first gave me the sense that the world was an enchanted place, (laughs) something which has been very key for my spiritual imagination since, and now as a Catholic. And this film did so without any of the CGI or sort of hyper-magical elements of, say, the recent 2020 movie adaptation. But all that aside, I do sincerely feel The Secret Garden is a beautiful exposition of themes like heaven, paradise and even the soul, particularly the feminine soul, as we'll learn about towards the end. Now these are all beautiful topics to explore in their own right, but often a little abstract for us heady moderns. So I invite you to ease into your deck chair, relax, and allow the imagery of the sacred garden to baptise your imagination. The Secret Garden is a story about 10-year-old Mary Lennox. She is raised in India, but sent to live in her uncle's manor in Yorkshire after her parents' untimely death. Mary is spoiled, selfish and rather bottled up, not liked at all by most people and hence a bit of a loner really. She is left to herself by her uncle, Arthur Craven, a heavily depressed man who often went abroad to escape the memory of his deceased wife. The manor is a sad, dreary place indeed and the only person in the manor who has time for Mary is a bubbly servant named Martha. It is Martha who first tells Mary about the late Mrs Craven's walled garden, which has been locked up and sealed since her death. Mary becomes intrigued by the idea of this forgotten garden, and the quest to discover its secrets leads her to discover a whole lot more about herself too. With the help of an unlikely troop of companions, including a robin and Martha's animal-loving brother Dickon, she finds her way through the thick ivy-covered walls of the secret garden. She quietly makes the garden her own, finding it a place of refuge and healing. And the more the garden is tended, the more it transforms. And the more it transforms, the more Mary transforms. And the more Mary transforms, the more the others around her transforms too. Or for the better, of course. By the end of the story, Mary is quite a different girl to the spoilt and selfish girl at the start, and the heavy sadness that had once engulfed Mistlethwaite Manor is now lifted. What comes across as a simple story is actually quite profound in its ability to speak of the spiritual life. Rather than being too systematic and analytical today, there are actually many metaphors we can draw from the secret garden. I'll now try and move between one layer of symbolism to another, 
hopefully without mixing metaphors too much. Firstly, let's look at the very image of an enclosed secret garden, for it is a very evocative image of heaven. Did you know that the word paradise, which comes from the ancient Iranian word paradisia, actually means a walled garden? Yet when we think of the paradise of, say, Eden in the Bible, we tend to think of a sort of sprawling forest or lush flowering meadows where Adam and Eve roamed freely with animals. But if we take a historical critical approach to the word paradise, the writers of Genesis would have actually meant the Garden of Eden to mean a walled garden, an enclosed garden. Such gardens were in fact a common feature in Near Eastern civilization. I mean, the fact that Adam and Eve were eventually banished from Eden supposes there was a sort of threshold or barrier in which paradise was contained. Anyway, if we run with the idea of paradise as a garden, it is because a garden is actually a good image of how the human and the divine can coexist in perfect harmony. Let me explain. A garden is a harmonious coming together of two things, order and chaos. A garden is orderly in the sense that it is tamed and nurtured and shaped by human hands, and yet it is chaotic in the sense that nature has a life and spontaneity of its own and can never really be fully tamed. Both order and chaos are present in any half-decent garden. Too much chaos and a garden would be a messy wilderness. Too much order and a garden would become suffocated and sterile. When Mary first arrives in the secret garden, it is actually mostly in chaos, overgrown, weedy and neglected. What does one little girl do with such a garden in the dead of winter? Well, Canadian psychologist Dr. Jordan Peterson has recently suggested that a life well-lived is like a well-tended garden, with the right embracing of both order and chaos. Both structure and spontaneity, both the known and the unknown. It is a life where two paradoxical values come together in fruitful harmony. So it goes in the spiritual life, for in a very real sense, faith is also the coming together of both order and chaos. For try as we might to control and predict God, he will always remain beyond us. Hence, when his Holy Spirit works in our lives, it can often feel like chaos, not because he is reckless and disorderly, but because we love order a little too much in our lives. Look what the Holy Spirit did to the timid shepherd boy David and the scared apostles at Pentecost. Sometimes the old order of our lives needs to be dismantled before the Lord can truly work in our lives. God's chaos is always good chaos, and it is to be greatly desired. Of course, this doesn't mean that we throw away all order in our spiritual life either, for again, a garden is a both and, both divine and human. We should still follow the liturgical calendar, have a prayer routine, etc. But even in bringing order to our spiritual lives, we must recognize that God's Spirit might invite some towards more order, while for others, more chaos. For Mary Lennox, it was perhaps the bringing about of order rather than chaos that allowed the sacred garden to minister to her. But what about you today? If your spiritual life was a garden, do you feel the Lord might be inviting you towards more order? Or more chaos. So far, we've just been looking at the garden as an image of paradise, a place where God and humanity can coexist in harmony. 
Now we change metaphors a little and turn to the where of paradise. Is it a place? Is it an ideal? Is it a state of being? Is it a time? Here, traditional Catholic theology has always maintained another great both and. Heaven is both external to us and internal to us. Yet we moderns often think of heaven as a place that's somewhere out there external to us, some place we'll hopefully get to after we die. This is of course true, and there is ample biblical evidence that points to the external reality of heaven, such as Jesus saying to strive and enter heaven via the narrow gate. But it is also sound theology to suggest that heaven is within us, and that paradise isn't something we get into, but something we already possess within us if we have the eyes to see it. In Luke 17, Jesus says we shouldn't point towards the kingdom of God by saying, here it is or there it is, for the kingdom of God is within you. Classical spiritual writers like Teresa of Avila and Catherine of Siena were onto this when their writings speak of the interior castle and the inner cell, respectively, where God dwells in our sacred center. God dwells within, and therefore, paradise dwells within. The soul is the secret garden we all possess. Lovingly made for God, we already possess within us the structure, if you like, of paradise. But if all this were true, Lawrence, why do so few of us know about this amazing secret garden within us? The answer to this is simple. We've lost the key to go inside our own garden. And all we see are thick, impenetrable, ivy-covered walls. This is the state of the human heart in a hostile world. Rather than being a means to contain paradise within, our walls instead often become barriers to protect what's inside from being hurt. In the story, Uncle Craven locks up the secret garden and buries the key because the garden once belonged to his late wife, who was the light of his life. After her untimely passing giving birth to Colin, he couldn't face the sorrow of losing her, so he, metaphorically, locks it up in the garden. This is of course understandable when any person is faced with great trauma and pain. I want to point out here that thick ivy-covered walls are not necessarily built consciously, or even a bad thing necessarily. After all, think of what the walls are trying to protect, the sacredness and fragile beauty of a garden inside. Think of the little shoots and flowers and rabbits and robins from in the story. They need protecting from outside hostility. If in our past our garden has been violated, trampled on and abused, then thick walls are a natural effect of that. Another reason why some of us thicken our walls is actually to protect it from ourselves. Perhaps through circumstances in our lives, we've had the chance to peer inside our hearts and we don't like what we see. Maybe you see it choking with anger, with pride or some other shameful vice. Rather than seeing a fresh springtime garden, we see what appears to be an ugly and dead-looking garden, disorderly and overrun. Given such a sorry sight, we hide it from ourselves and dare not believe that the God of the universe would ever want to dwell in such a mess. So, what's God's solution to those keyless walls around our heart? The story of the secret garden helps answer this question. Remember that Mary doesn't find her way into the garden by her own strength, curious as she was about it. No, she needed help, both of the spiritual kind and of the human kind. The spiritual help she received comes in the form of the friendly Robin, who takes a liking to her as soon as they meet. 
Like God's grace from on high, the robin seemed unbothered by Mary's circumstances and just wanted to help her. It was the robin that first shows Mary where the key to the garden was buried. And then it was the robin that shows Mary where the hidden gate was under the ivy. You may remember that the robin actually lived inside the secret garden and so was a more than suitable guide for leading Mary in. So it goes for the Holy Spirit in our lives. Like the robin, the dove of the Holy Spirit comes from us from beyond our broken human circumstances. He is unbothered by our history, what others think of our garden, or even what we think of our garden, for he himself dwells there and wants you in there too. Like Mary, we do not and cannot earn his help, for divine grace by definition cannot be earned. But we can ask for it, and then, like Mary, wait in anticipation. The little robin aside, Mary also required human aid to get inside the garden. These come in the form of both Martha and Dick and Solsby, the Yorkshire siblings that are just plain adorable. Like the robin, they seem to come forth from a different reality to which Mary inhabited, completely unaffected by her rudeness and coldness. It was Martha who first shows love to Mary, also placing within her the prospect of finding the secret garden. Then it was her brother Dickon who journeyed with Mary into the garden, becoming both her guide and the friend she never had. Mary had no idea about how gardens worked, or even whether her secret garden was alive or dead. It took Dickon to affirm to her that not only was the garden alive, it would in fact blossom magnificently in springtime. Dickon held before Mary's eyes the reality which she could not see herself. He then patiently worked with her to till and sow and weed the garden to prepare it for this reality. What Martha and Dickon are to Mary is what God-given friends can be for us. For part of the way God has chosen to love you is actually through your friends. For it is only when we feel safe and accepted by our friends that we can truly let our walls down, per se. I'd even say that these friends actually help determine the extent we can even know our own secret gardens. For in my experience, a quality friend can sometimes see more within us than we can see ourselves. And during those winter times of our lives, when all we see is a dead-looking garden, a friend reminds us that it is only dormant and to hang on for the springtime that's coming. As Donna Roberts reminds us, a friend is someone who knows the song in your heart and can sing it back to you when you have forgotten the words. If you're enjoying this episode of The Myth Pilgrim, please subscribe to it so you can stay up to date with all the latest episodes. If you'd like to be notified by email every time a new episode is released, hop onto the website at themythpilgrim.com to register. You know, for all our talk on friendships and paradise and souls, I feel the secret garden might be a particularly apt metaphor for the feminine soul. St. Edith Stein once said that a woman's soul is fashioned to be a shelter in which other souls may unfold. I'll repeat that quote. A woman's soul is fashioned to be a shelter in which other souls may unfold. Wow. In our story, 
This truth is illustrated firstly in the way Martha was able to mother and shelter Mary, holding her long enough for something precious to unfold. Ever so patiently, Martha comes alongside the scared little girl with stories and tea and puzzles and skipping ropes and even eventually her own family home. And where many others fled during Mary's many tantrums, Martha stayed and in doing so allowed the real Mary to emerge, the Mary that was loyal and grateful and curious and compassionate. Then, of course, when Martha enables Mary to find the secret garden, this garden in turn becomes a shelter for others, enabling other souls to unfold there. Everyone who entered Mary's garden is healed and transformed. Inside the garden, young wheelchair-bound Colin Craven realises he can walk, Arthur Craven realises he can laugh, and Mary realises that she can cry. There, even the old gardener, Ben Weatherstaff, realises the reality of magic with a capital M, a term the author links with God's providence. And of course, these people in turn helps break the spell of sadness that had once engulfed the entire Misselthwaite Manor. And all of this because one little girl was enabled to find her secret garden. Hmm... But do you believe that you can be a Mary and affect the world and people around you in such a profound way? We had spoken a little earlier about how the walls around our hearts can block people from entering, including ourselves. The other effect of the walls is, of course, that the world misses out on the unique beauty and fragrance of your secret garden. Yet, no other garden can bless the world in the same way yours can. For you have unique insights and passions that God has given only you and the world would be a far lesser place without them. But on a deeper level, God has especially placed people in your life that he wills your garden to bless. It is no accident that you were born today with the people around you that you have. Share your garden with them, invite them inside. Give them space there for their own souls to unfold, for their own gardens to unfurl. It may take a lot of courage to be that vulnerable, but if you need a little inspiration, let the example of Mary Lennox be your guide. For the practical pilgrim exercise, I'm going to suggest something that I've done myself a few times on retreat. Draw what your secret garden might look like, even if you're not particularly artistic. One way you can do this is to include plants and features and garden ornaments that symbolise you. You may also want to include parts of the garden you feel other people don't see, or even parts that you're ashamed of. You can't actually get this exercise wrong, and you might find it actually quite revealing. As you do the drawing, be talking with God about what you're drawing and why. This way, you're already relating to the king inside your garden while you're drawing. And if your rather ordinary drawing skills are really bothering you, remember that a little chaos can be a good thing. Okay, friends, until next time, journey forth, take care, and God bless.